speaker to listen today, um, is that there's nothing in this lecture that is original with me. Um, I have, over the past month, been um, listening to many sermons, listening, reading many commentaries, and have been blessed by many pastor's notes. If you, um, just so that you don't think that this is of me, this is truly of God and many theologians. So, with that, um, I'm going to um, begin with a prayer, and we'll start off with that. Father, we come to you today in humble gratitude that we are able to study your word. Please give me the words that you want them to hear and apply them so that they may apply them to their own lives. I pray this in the precious name of your son. Amen. I'm going to start out with a couple of quotes instead of a, a joke. This is a pretty dark lecture, so I'm going to kind of give you a little something to think about. And John Bunyan made a quote. It says, I have often found that the best Christians are found in the worst of times. I find that very something to take home with me today. Also, John MacArthur quotes, Christ is the focus of the entire Bible, and you need to study it to know what he's like. Too often we study the Bible for the sake of theological arguments. You want to look up what there is. Or to answer questions. Those things are really important, but the main point of the Bible, is, uh, Bible, is, of Bible study is to know more about Christ so that you can be more like him. And with that, we're going to go to Genesis 6, 1 to 13. No matter how hard people work, no matter how clever their scientific understanding might be, no matter how great their passion or their feverish effort to guarantee the continuity of human survival, it's not going to work. There is nothing within the power of man to stop the inevitable destruction of the human race, the earth, and the universe as we know it. The Bible tells us just how history is going to end. It's going to end when the Lord Jesus returns, destroys all the ungodly, and establishes his kingdom. At the end of that kingdom, there will be a final victory over all the ungodly. God will have reached the end of his forbearance and his mercy. The entire heaven and earth as we know them will be uncreated, and everything that existed in this realm will cease to exist, and it'll be replaced by an eternal state. Most today forget that there was a massive worldwide flood that drowned the entire, not part, the entire earth. They willfully ignore that. It is in the Bible, but it's also in science that they tout, as we shall see when we get into the study of the flood. Now, because we want to understand what will bring judgment in the future, it's important for us to know what brought judgment in the past. So let's go to Genesis chapter 6. Now, why did God destroy the world back in the time of Noah? 
Wouldn't understanding that give us some insight as to why he will destroy the world in the future? The answer is, of course, it does. So let's proceed to our study of verses 1 to 13. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of man, and they were fair. They took them wives of all which they chose, and the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man, for he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Those are verses 1 to 3. You see, these verses are definitely a hot topic in theological circles and have been for many, many years. It is an area that's not a doctrinal issue, but it is the difference of interpretation by theologians. We have just gone through the genealogy of the sons of Adam in chapters 4 and chapters 5. With that in mind, hold that thought, we do not want to lose the overall message or the theme of the overall book of Genesis. God's plan of redemption by providing a seed to crush the head of Satan. After the death of Abel, man's depravity became progressively so great that God wiped out all but Noah and his family. What caused this corrupt decline? We need to remember that there was an evil line of Cain that existed right up to the birth of Seth. We are not told how long that took, but Scripture doesn't tell us that. But we are told that there was a righteous line that followed the birth of Seth. It came to pass, verse 1, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Now, this gives us some background. Females were born on the earth. Marriages were plentiful, as well as the children that that union produced. A population explosion, if you will. It is estimated that there may have been billions of people on the earth at that time. So that during that time, verse 2, the sons of God saw the daughters of man that were fair, and they took them wives of all they chose. In this verse, we have recorded a further stage in the sinful fall of the corrupted human race, intermarriage between the godly and the ungodly. The sons of God chose wives, and corruption took place. There are four interpretations of the term sons of God two of which are most accepted. They were fallen angels or demons inhabiting men, or they were, the second uh, interpretation is that they were men in the line of Seth. Both schools of thought have strong theological support based on multiple references in Scripture. Now, I am no theologian, and I'm not going to get into a theological debate here, I'm going to present in concise form the basis for each side of that debate. A great summary of, the, of those, both those views have been included in the packets you have. First up is that they were fallen angels, demons, if you will. The theologians interpret the words this way. 
They used Jude, Jude as their scripture support. They believed that their children would have been created by Satan to prevent the birth of Jesus in a satanic plot. They cite this Hebrew word, they cite that this Hebrew word is only used of angels in the Old Testament. This same term is used in Job three times and is used to refer to angels. Some have thought that this is how mythology might have been born. But others see a problem. They cite Mark 12, verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. They conclude that angels don't marry, and he reminds them that he was speaking of angels in heaven. Genesis 5 also speaks of mankind being judged and not angels. These theologians also reference both Jude 1, 6 and 2 Peter 2, 4, where it speaks of angels and bonds. And they, they believe that these angels and bonds are the very angels that inhabited the earth at that time and are being held for judgment. The bottom line is that when Moses wrote this book, the term would have been easily understood by Israel at that time. So that leads us to discuss the second interpretation. These theologians, the people that believe this, they believe that the sons of God refer to the godly line of Seth that got corrupted by taking wives based on beauty alone with no regard for moral character. The godly marry the ungodly and ignore the judgment that they knew would come. These theologians believe that this follows the theme of the book as it flows from the genealogies in chapters 4 of Cain and in chapters 5 of Seth. Enoch preached during the very same time Noah preached. You would think that when Enoch was called up to heaven, that should have been a sign of impending judgment. Yet they progressively corrupted the line of Seth in all mankind to the point that it was so corrupt that God saw only Noah and his family as godly. Regardless of which view you hold, most all agree that Moses used this to show Israel what happens when you intermarry and intermarry against what God had designed. The New Testament also emphasized the very same thing. This is in 2 Corinthians 6.14, and it tells us not to become unequally yoked. Paul asks, what does light have to do with darkness? We are to marry for a uh, person's inner character or their inner qualities, not just their outward appearance. Intermarriage leads to many problems, and it certainly doesn't lead your family to God. Marriage is not to be taken lightly. It's a challenging journey at best. So going into it foolishly by marrying an unbeliever will cause the decline of your family. And the result of ignoring this, on to verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man, for that he, is, he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. Why was there 120 years before the flood? Well, because we have a loving God 
who is long-suffering, and he gives Israel a chance to repent. How amazing is that? Think of it. Corruption to the very max, and yet, but God. We are still doing the very same thing today. You know, this is our wake-up call. It is just like the times of Noah. Corruption like we've never seen before. God is loving, but there is an end to his mercy and an end to his patience. We are so blessed that God gave us his written word. Just one example of this would be his favor to us in the book of Jude. It is better written, it is a letter written to warn us about false teachers who were going to be judged. He gives us three examples of judgment in history so that we can see them as a warning to us. In verse 3, it says the unbelieving Israelites coming out of Egypt were judged. Verse 6, the angels that fell with Satan were judged. Verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah for seeking out straight, strange flesh were judged. All these examples had different sins, but all are to be judged eternally. Genesis 6 gives us the warning given by God through Noah to the Israelites at that time. Now let's take a look at the consequences of their sins, one of which being intermarriage. Verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also after that. Then, when, then the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. And the same became mighty men and were of old men of renown. This leads us to the second interpretive challenge. There were giants and in some translations, Nephilim on the earth. Nephilim is a word meaning giants in physical stature, or that is how it's described in the lexicons. But nobody really knows who or what they really were. There is an interpretive belief that these were the offspring of the intermarriage between the angels or demons with women. Others believe that they were gen just genetically large men, like those spoken of by men returning to Moses to give a report on the people of Canaan in Numbers 13.32. And they brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land eaten up by the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw are men of great stature. Deuteronomy 1.24 speaks of the sons of Anakim as if they were Nephilim or giants. These are the, the people that Moses fought in the desert. Many commentary, commentators believe them to be warriors, great men of stature, mighty in battle, such as Goliath. Now, Goliath was nine feet tall. After they further believed that the Nephilim were on the earth before and after the flood, that it was the gene pool present in Noah's family that passed it on after the flood. 
You can see increasing sin and violence that was prevalent at the time of these mighty giants and warriors. It must have been a terrifying time and a place to live. The following verses do show us the depth of depravity, but they also exalt God. Corruption has gone beyond the point of tolerance. God will drown the earth. Verses 5 to 12 tell us what the Lord saw, what the Lord felt, what the Lord said, and what the Lord gave. With that thought, we are now going to read verse 5, and this is what the Lord saw. When the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great on the earth, and that every intent on the thought of his heart was only evil continuously, the Lord now witnessed the wickedness of man. Society had reached its maximum potential of evil. There was literally no restraint on sin at all. All man wanted to do all man wanted and all man's thoughts was of evil at all times. Now, I can't even wrap my mind around that. But you see, sin is an internal issue. That was the bitter root, the corrupt spring. Their principles were corrupt. They did evil deliberately. Sin begins in the mind. Your thought life can be just as evil or even more corrupt than the life that you may or may not project externally. Sadly, it is much the same today. Mark 7, 18, Jeremiah and Romans 3 all speak of what defiles us. Evil thoughts are just as bad as the ones carried out. What you think about, what you read, what you watch can fill your mind with the seeds of temptation. Be careful not to let yourself become numb to sin. You see, man's heart has not changed, even after the flood, as seen in Genesis 8:21. The Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on the count of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Man's intent on evil remains the same. He has a heart that needs to be changed. People blame God for the evil on the earth. They say, why would a loving God allow this to happen? Well, Scripture answers them in Romans 1, 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that of which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. And God's response was seen in verses 24, 26, and 28. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. God is loving. He is merciful and oh so patient. But God does punish man, and one way he does this is by letting them do what they want to do. 
God does care. He is letting man experience the consequences of sin. Yet, he is merciful in that he is withholding his judgment on that sin, allowing time for man to come to repentance. That is just unbelievably amazing to me. What a loving, merciful God we have. Now we know what the Lord saw, onto how, what, how the Lord felt. Verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. God is grieved. He's anguished. He's enraged. This is putting the feelings of God in human terms. Like a father, when he sees a very stubborn rebellion of his child, which grieves him and makes him wish, even for just a split moment, that he had been childless. God was sad in pronouncing judgment on Saul. Jesus wept over the unrepentant Jerusalem's coming destruction. Ephesians 4 tells us not to grieve God by living like the old man. You know, what you were before you became new. When we sin, we need to think about how that sin affects God. That should be our guide on how to walk here on earth. Saying that God is grieved or sorry does not mean that he changed. He's immutable or he's unchangeable. Scripture tells us that God does have emotions. His feelings or emotions are always inherently consistent with his essential person. He is loving, he can be angry, and even display his wrath as he did with the flood. Because you see, God hates sin. And that brings us to verse 7. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it grieves me that I have made them. God's patience has finally come to an end. He speaks. He will blot out, wipe out, obliterate man, beast, and creeping thing from the very face of this earth. You see, God is sovereign, yet man is responsible. Something we don't fully understand, but we take on faith as truth. He hates sin this much. You see, today is no different. God's still grieved, and judgment will come. But remember something Matthew Henry states so well. None are punished by the justice of God, but those who hate to be reformed by the grace of God. And then we have, but Noah... But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah certainly did not find favor in the eyes of men. They hated him because he, and he preached for 120 years. Why? Why did they hate him? Because his preaching condemned them, and it condemned their worldview. 
but he did find favor in the eyes of God. He was an amazing man. He is listed in Hebrews as a champion of faith. Hebrews 11:7. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the, of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah walked with integrity. He was honest, but he was also devout. He was a just man. That is, justified before God by faith in the promised seed. It's easy to be religious when religion's in fashion, but it shows strong faith and resolution when you buck the strong worldview. It was a world of lust, a world of sensuality, as, we, as in verse 4. A world of violence. It's hard to be light in a progressively darkening world. When wickedness is now the norm, what can be expected but a flood of wrath? Yet, verse 8, there's a ray of hope. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How do you stand in the eyes of the Lord? Answers and practical applications of this can be seen in many ways, like who you choose to marry. Don't get caught up in emotion and lower your standards. Marry a godly Christian. It has long-lasting consequences. You need to really look at your life. Does anything in it grieve God? Is there some sin that needs repentance and needs to be removed from your life? Or is there something that needs to be added, such as more time with him in his word, or maybe just more time in prayer? We can have hope, and the epistles tell us we can even have joy. So don't get caught up in emotion. Be encouraged. If Noah could live his life of faith in such a time of this, we can too. There are qualities of Noah that shows us how to stand alone in a wicked, perverse world. Verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. The generations of Noah starts the line that must be preserved to produce the promised seed, Jesus Christ. Noah becomes the new Adam. Both walked with God, were recipients of a promise, caretakers of lower creatures, fathers of three sons, workers of the soil, and had one son that was even under a curse. Noah must have come from a very godly home, this shows us how important it is to raise your children in a Christian environment of faith. Noah was righteous and saved by grace through faith. He believed God and the promise given to Adam of a Savior. We too are given that promise. We too are to walk by faith in this perverse world. Be distinct. Be light in the darkness. 
Noah was light in the darkness for 120 years. I can't imagine that. We, like Noah, must evangelize the lost, proclaim truth in a progressively evil-loving world. Now, Noah was not sinless, but blameless. He had integrity in his time, not perfect, but blameless in the sight of God. Your integrity is how others view you. It's important for us not to do things that others perceive as against your testimony and what you believe. Noah walked with God. He had fellowship with God. He had a true relationship with God. Being godly requires discipline. It just doesn't happen. In Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That comes with feeding yourself on the word of God and making sure you have time in prayer. Noah, you see, must have done this because meanwhile, in verse 10, Noah begat three sons, Shem, Han, and Japheth. Noah's sons had a godly heritage and must have had a very godly home life. All humanity must now come from the lines of these three men. They must have been deeply influenced by Noah's life and his example, a man who walked and talked with God. They were the remnant God had preserved uh, from which a Savior would come. But still, verses 11 and 12, the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Noah, in the face of all this corruption, trusted God. God now speaks to Noah, verse 13. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy the earth. God speaks of impending judgment, not only on mankind, but also on the entire earth. Remember, the earth, too, was cursed by God because of the sin of Adam. We know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth from the time of the garden when that curse was given right up to now. Romans 8.22 For we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. All creation was to be destroyed, man and earth. Yet, merciful God provides 120 years for repentance. Mercy in the face of defiance. In our day, many people say that God is a God of love and much too kind and much too loving to punish sin in any such manner. We have passed 4,500 years since the time of Noah. Judgment has yet not come, but it will. 
Those people forget the holiness of God. In Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Also in the New Testament, Jesus describes future judgment as the being like the times of Noah. And so we are to be like Noah, faithful, trusting, and a light in the perverse times of darkness. Today, very few care. Life goes on as normal. Yet we are to stand apart in our world. Someone once said, when we don't see the hand of God, we are to trust the heart of God. Studying great godly men who walk in the past will help you walk faithfully, even during today's challenging times. Ecclesiastes tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. We saw there that we saw that there were two reasons for the flood. The judgment of the sons of man, of the sons of God, and two, judgment on the sinfulness of humanity in general. So just like Noah, we need to trust God even if no one else does. Dr. Constable summarizes my thoughts perfectly. The breath of life remains his to give and his to recall. A future judgment is coming. We are not told when, but are you ready? Have you prepared yourself by turning to God in repentance and trusting in God's grace through faith alone in the death of his son on the cross as payment in full for all your sins. If not, the time is now, right now, for judgment is coming. But God in his mercy, remember, but God in his mercy gave us a savior. Turn to him today so you can be saved from the judgment to come and walk as light in the darkness, and we walk for his glory alone. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your words of wisdom by which we are to be light in, in the world of darkness. Impart to our hearts your message of faith, trust, and preparedness seen in these verses. And I pray to you in the name of your precious sons. Amen.